Welcome to Park Media. Park, of course, is short for politics, art, roots, culture, the very foundations of our human experience. I'm your host, Vincent Emanuele. Today's program features one of the most prolific directors and important thinkers and rebels of our time, Oliver Stone. This is part one of a two-part conversation. On this segment, Oliver and I compare and contrast our experiences in the war, for him in Vietnam, and of course for me in Iraq. We also cover Oliver's childhood, formative years, experiences in film school, his lifelong passion of writing, and perhaps most importantly, and for me, one of the key messages of the book, the importance of taking chances and challenging oneself, always pushing the envelope, pursuing one's passions at any cost. The stories we discuss can be found in Oliver's recently released biography, Chasing the Light. Check it out. An engaging and fascinating look into Oliver's personal history, experiences in Hollywood, and so much more, including very cool inside stories that you won't find anywhere else. Chasing the Light. Do yourself a favor and buy a copy for the holidays. Enjoy. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry I had to uh, delay a bit, but I think we're on now, and we finally are on after so many communications, right? It's okay. You, uh, I greatly appreciate Cassandra's help, and thank you for the patience. You uh, met me in Chicago? I did at the Roberto Clemente Center with uh, Peter Kuznick when you were giving a presentation for Untold History. I was there with Veterans for Peace. And you, you at that time, you'd been out of Iraq for how long? I had been, I was in the Marine Corps from 2002 to 2006. And then, so I think I had been out at that point about four years. I see. Were you, were you an enlisted or officer? I was a grunt. I was a squad automatic machine gunner with 1st Battalion, 7th Marines out of 29 Palms, California. And where did you, which part of Iraq? Uh, the first time in southern Iraq, and then in the second time uh, in Al Ambar province in a town called Al Qaim, which is just on the Euphrates River and about five miles east of the Syrian border. I see. So uh, I'm sorry I had my bandana on. Hold on. Uh, I was wondering. <laughs> in the south, uh, Basra? Is that Basra? Uh, actually, no. It's I was further south than that. What, where? The uh, gentleman who is recording right now, Sergio uh, Kochergin, uh, we were in the same platoon together. Uh, Sergio's family came over from Ukraine in 1997. Uh, he was He's from Crimea. And so he joined the Marine Corps in 2002. We met each other in the same platoon, uh, did our first deployment uh, in the same unit, and then in the second deployment, Sergio detached with the scout snipers. And he Why went, the hell did he do that? Was he like looking for American citizenship? Was that the reason? No. No, I think like myself, uh, we, we were raised on a... Well, he wanted to, for him, he wanted to get the hell out of Philadelphia. You know, he was living in this diaspora. Oh, he was already here for a while. I thought he was uh, looking for, that's a strange story. Yeah. So he came here in 97 and then he ends up joining the Marine Corps because he's living in Philadelphia, you know, a community of immigrants getting into trouble, stealing cars, doing a bunch of goofy shit, needed to get out of town, ended up joining the Marine Corps. I joined for a lot of the reasons that you would probably despise because it's mentioned in your book. And that is, uh, you know, I watched a, too much fucking Rambo and too much Chuck Norris. I mean, I have to be honest with you, Oliver. My dad, my dad was a street guy. He was a hoodlum. He hung out with the outfit in Chicago. He uh, was an iron worker, and uh, he was very street smart. He was in the Army during Vietnam. My grandfather was in World War II, Anzio, 32 months. 
after immigrating from Italy, ends up back in Italy uh, fighting. And uh, my dad told me when I told him that I joined the Marine Corps, he was like, are you fucking stupid? He's like, you're going to join the fucking Marine Corps to get sent to another Vietnam? Are you goofy? I told him at the time, I, you know, I was 17. I knew better. I was like, I know better than you, Pops. And that was... By that. the way, had, had you ever seen Platoon before? No, I had not. Uh, why did you avoid it? I don't think I avoided it, Oliver, to be honest with you. The movies, I, your movies from when I was a kid were Natural Born Killers and Any Given Sunday and U-Turn. Those were like the movies as a child that I remember because they most sort of fit into that 90s milieu of like, I mean, I still love Any Given Sunday pretty much. I mean, you nailed it with the NFL. That's for damn sure. But those were the movies I grew up on and was, you know, watching a lot of that bullshit. Chuck Norris, Rambo, all this nonsense. I'll check. Just for the action part. No, no. In fact, I, we started watching it regularly when we were in the barracks and then we started picking out characters. We'd be like, Sergio, you're Elias. Or we'd tell somebody else, you're Barnes. You know, that's, that's how we watched platoon when we were in. That's a funny story. Uh, so you educated yourself, so to speak, after the war. Uh, during. After my first deployment to Iraq, my mom, I was sent home early during that deployment. My mom had a brain aneurysm, so I was sent home on a Red Cross message. When I got home, it was the summer of 2003. My friends were just coming back from university. They were like, hey, Vince, have you ever heard of Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn and Cornell West? And I'm going, no, I don't, you know, and they, they were becoming politicized on campus as I was stuck in that insular bubble of the Marine Corps. I came back, was eating a lot of psychedelics at that time with them, a lot of mushrooms, having a lot of uh, thoughts about whether I wanted to kill people, thoughts. So I was already questioning after that first deployment, went back to my unit, we trained, went to our second deployment, and two weeks before our second deployment, a young private from uh, Kentucky, Vic V, took me to the San Diego movie theater to watch Fahrenheit 9-11, and two weeks later, we were in Iraq for the second time. And I had pretty much decided at that point, you know, where I stood with regard to the war. And that made the whole deployment a hell of a lot more difficult, which was in some ways a lot different than your own experiences, you know, from reading through the book. Yeah, it was impossible to educate yourself while you were there. It was just not possible. It, it wasn't, there was no talk about it. I mean, it was still 68, maybe in 69, but the point was that it takes time. It took longer for me to learn. As you can see, I mean, it was, the book it describes it. I mean, even uh, even as late as 1986, I say, you know, I know I still have to go forward in my education. I know that I'm dealing with a platoon here and I'm not dealing with the three, four million Vietnamese. You know, I'm not dealing with the systematic issues. And I and I knew I had to take more steps Are we recording? Are we okay? We we, yeah, we're we fine. We're, we're fine, Oliver. I, 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 one of the key moments for you, and we could jump around because I have this laid out in a linear fashion, but we don't have to do it that way. And what I'm interested in as well is, you know, you met, it seems to me that a key moment in your rethinking of the war was meeting Ron Kovic. And, and I had the chance to meet Ron in 2008 when we were protesting the Democratic National Convention. There were about 15,000 of us in Denver protesting Obama in 2008, warning the Democrats that he was going to, uh, you know, carry on with U.S. militarism and U.S. empire. And How did you know that? We felt very uh, proud of ourselves for that because a lot of people shit on us for uh, taking a stance against How Obama. did you know he was going in that direction? 
Um, two reasons. One, because if you look back at a history of U.S. foreign policy, there seems to be much more continuity between the two parties than there is on domestic policy. And two, because we had a pretty good idea of who he had surrounded himself with. And being from originally from Chicago and now living in Indiana, I had a really good idea of what his record was as a state senator, which was everything but this radical community organizer from the south side of Chicago, which was just a totally drummed up bullshit narrative. Um, So a lot of us sort of knew at that time. And that was when I got to meet Ron, which was a a great uh, honor for me. Well, in answer to your question, yeah, I mean, Ron Kovic, 1976, seven, 1977, July. I had taken, I had written Platoon already in 76. So uh, you can see my mind is roiling with new thoughts. And when I, I'm introduced to Ron, I didn't want to do the story at first because it scared the shit out of me. But Ron was an anchor through the whole process and meeting him same day as I met Richard Boyle, that's right. a coincidence, but Ron introduced me to a whole group of people that I had no contact with previously, uh, Vietnam vets, I didn't know any. Partly because I was in New York City and partly because I pursued, which there are not that many in New York, I mean, maybe in Queens and Staten Island, but I was a Manhattan guy. And also because I would, mine was a different exotic profession that most of them would not be in touch with. So that and the fact that I was a writer which spends a lot of time alone. So I didn't really know these veterans. And Kovic knew a whole network of them. And some of them were really fucked up. Uh, I mean, I went to uh, group meetings. I went to uh, outreach clinics and veterans hospitals. I, I met a lot of people with Ron. Some of them were really... Uh, dangerous to themselves and suicidal and with their family lives completely disrupted. <laughs> there were some characters there, but I saw the desperation and I realized that I was not by any means the only one uh, that I didn't ever talk about the war. I found it to be, I, I, I wasn't a complainer, you know, I, I went to, I did my dit. you know what the Marines ethic is like. You do your bit and you get out and you don't want to be one of those people on the, on the bread line uh, calling, uh, you know, pity me. I just hated that shit. And uh, for that reason, I didn't have much patience with the John Kerry types. I really didn't. I thought, you know, you went over, fucking take your bullet. And, you know, I didn't take, look at it systematically. I looked at it personally. Yeah. As I think most veterans do. I mean, most yeah. of the guys, we came back, Sergio and I both testified to Congress in 2008. And when we testified to Congress, we made sure not to use any of the names of the people that we served with. Our point was to point out how systemic the killing of civilians were, uh, that there were multiple war crimes being committed, and that this was happening from the top down. That this, And of course, yes, there were Marines who took it upon themselves to do uh, a number of really horrific things that we testified to, um, but we made sure to sort of focus on those who were in power. You know, our point wasn't to sort of call out the people like us who were put in a really shit situation who were just trying to survive and get back home to their family. You know, we the point we were trying to make was that, you know, the people in power are the ones who put us in this context and they're primarily to blame. And a lot of the guys from our unit did not appreciate that. There's no question yeah. about that. And I understood their position. I didn't understand their position then as much as I understand it now. Yeah. I, uh, 
I would say, uh, well, do you remember the scene in Born the Fourth of July when there, he goes to the pool table in Massapequa at night and there's two Marines from yeah. Chosen from Chosen Reservoir, I think, one of them anyway, and he's saying, you know, take your, take your, take the medicine, man. You, you wanted it, you volunteered, you're a Marine man. Yeah. And that was the attitude. And it is a man's attitude. And, and I think it, there's a lot of virtue in it, but there's also some blind spots. And uh, I have the feeling, I have not been to Iraq or Afghanistan, but I have the feeling that it's a much more regimented group that now than it was back then, because I can see all the regulations that were already in place in the 60s, and there were tons of them, believe me. That's part of my huge problem with the Army, and I raised that issue with the Westmoreland story and all that crap about being properly outfitted. And But I feel that after the war, it got worse, and because they started to tighten up on everything, and I, the, uh, the, the, these documentaries I've seen, it seems like it wouldn't get so out of hand. You couldn't, you 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 wouldn't kill civilians so readily. It wouldn't be that. It wouldn't be. You couldn't get away with it as much as you could in Vietnam. I'll tell you why. Partly, it's the jungle versus the desert. In the jungle, you're very very hidden, much more so. And villages are spread out. And we break up into small units. We're not really looking at him with a sergeant around or with a lieutenant. Fuck, I don't, you know, the lieutenant might have been there, but he doesn't play a, a role in most of my films, in most of the most of the, what you see. Those were my experiences as well, though, Oliver. I will say this. I think you're right about the desert versus the, the yeah. uh, jungle. Oh, go I'll, ahead. I'm sorry. I'll make my point, though, about, uh, and Vietnam was a, it, 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 it came up, Honest. I mean, the uh, what I'm saying is it surprised us. We were, I think, by the time you guys hit Iraq, I think that the because they'd been there already and they they planned it all. You know, the but you know, as you know, war is not nothing to do with plans, but because they mostly fall apart. And I, when I see the documentaries, it's the same old routine: move in, search, destroy, search, look, not even destroy, search, look, boom, you're fired on, you're ambushed, a couple of snipers freak out. Everyone's screaming on the radio. They call in the fucking artillery. They call in the choppers. They make a big deal about it. It's the American overreaction to everything. Instead of being quiet and silent and, and looking for where the fucking shot's coming from and moving up on it and trying to get it, it's, it's this game of noise. Noise and firepower. That was the big word. Put out firepower. And I don't think that works. I, I think it's a waste of money as well as a waste of strategy. And it's to basically, oh, well, let's scare the shit out of the sniper, maybe. But what's he going to do? He's going to run away, and you're never going to find anything, and you're going to spend a couple of million dollars blowing the shit out of the place and killing civilians or else damaging property and or water buffalo or two. <laughs> then you move in, and you make this big after-action report, and then nothing fucking happened yep. except a couple of bullets were fired in. Maybe a guy got wounded. And that was another thing in Vietnam. There was stupidity of reaction in the sense of, not only overreacting, but you get a guy wounded. It's inevitable he's going to be out there in a, in a, in a fire lane of some kind. And the first thing the idiots do is they that because we're, we got this John Wayne attitude, the, the medic runs out. They know that. The NBA, uh, VC are not stupid. Of course they knew that. And they knew, and, they'd, and they would get the medic, and then they would get the, and they get the next guy if they could. We fell into so many multiple ambushes like that. 
where people got hurt for no reason because they were being fools. So that goes on. And friendly fire is a big issue for me because I don't know about Iraq because, I, again, the desert is a little more old. But there, we know that after 69, there was more fraggings. That's to say intended uh, friendly fire. But there's the other issue of unintended, which is huge. And in my estimate, it was, I say, up to 20%, maybe more. And that means a fifth of the casualties in Vietnam, that's more than 10,000 people were killed by friendly fire. And that you can't joke around. They bury it. The Pentagon buries it, buries it, and they don't want to. Obviously, it's a scandal which would come out with the parents and so forth and so on. And also there's these people who say, well, the parents don't want to know that he was killed by friendly fire. Fuck, man, I don't know. Maybe they do want to know. You know, hey, the guy in that guy in Afghanistan, the football player. Pat Tillman. Pat, yeah, his parents apparently, you know, think, don't want to know. You know, they don't want to know. That's what I was told. But right. it's, it's part of the fundamental dishonesty of the way we fight wars. You don't see other armies doing that. You don't see the Russians in Afghanistan complaining about uh, you know, they, they were, they were, they get the job done the way the best they can or not. And, uh, they had huge problems, as you know, huge problems. They fought a different kind of war in Chechnya. The point is that American lying is what bothers me. Lie, 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 hypocrisy. Whether it comes home in a, first of all, you bring them home in a, in, a, in those days on a funeral and you give them the whole, I, I went to a, in the, when I was in training, I was I I went to those funerals where South Carolina, where you go and fire rifles in the air. So I had to attend to a lot of those funerals, yep. not a lot, but a few. You see, it's all a lie because the guy lying in the coffin. First of all, you can't even see him. He's probably completely mutilated, and on top of that, he was probably mutilated by his own grenades, right. or somebody fucked up, or an artillery shell hit him, yep. or a bomb hit him, and we were sitting around there like calling him a great hero. It's crap. And then on top of it, after that experience, they, they banned under Bush, they banned uh, funerals. They banned, I mean, they banned showing images of returning, uh, uh, what do you call them, uh, caskets, yep. right? Yep. Am I wrong? I mean, no, you're somewhere absolutely in right. I mean, how, how much denial goes on? Which raises a third question after civilians and friendly fire, which I call the biggest lie of all, telling Americans we're winning the war from the beginning even as we're losing it, nothing's working, more money's being thrown at it. And we keep lying about it. We're winning, we're winning, we're winning. Light at the end of the tunnel. It was disgusting. And it remains a fundamental mistake. And the reason we're in Afghanistan 20 fucking years with doing nothing is that. Uh, the, uh, and, and Iraq too, it's, it was disgusting war, disgusting way to fight war. Totally, it points the finger right at who we are. And I think it goes through public life and political life, the line and we see on the debates, I mean, from both sides, you know, it's just, it's all show, show, show. When does America ever get real? I mean, I wonder when I, as, I, as an American at my age, after listening to the bullshit for 70 years, what, when does this turn around? Well, we're at a point now where it has to, between climate change and the, the situation with the U.S. empire, the amount of wars that we're in, the economic inequality, the, you know, protests in the streets, race relations, the war on drugs. I mean, you can go on and on. It seems very clear if you read throughout history that we are an empire that is facing a very crucial moment in time. 
you know, what we choose to do over the next decade or so, maybe those choices have already been made. You know, maybe to some degree our fate has already been sealed. I do my best to, uh, you know, push things in the opposite direction, but I, not in, you know, actually when you, you're, what you just said, we're not in wars. We're in fake wars. We're we don't lose. We can't. We do. We deny casualties. We don't want to have because the parents are going to get pissed off and blah blah blah. So they're not wars. What they're what they are are money holes or they're money drainage pits just to give money to collaborators like the Vietnamese who fucked it all up and were and stole like crazy to the Afghan to the uh, Iraqis. These are not stupid people. They love us. Come here, America. Give us some more money. We we we're gonna we find a nice place to fight. We're gonna of course fight the enemy, but you know you know what they're gonna do with it. My friend went over as an advisor. He was Vietnam vet. He went over to uh, one of those places like Fallujah. Fallujah. I forgot what it was. He said he was a cop. So the whole time he was there for a year, a year and a half on a contract, a contract. He making big bucks. Oh, yeah. With other police advisors, you know where their their police department was in a whorehouse in Fallujah. Literally, he says it was unbelievable. The graft, corruption, just I see that all the time, and that's America. We had contractors <laughs> handing us uh, business cards when we were leaving Iraq the second time. They said, "Hey, if you want to come back and make twenty times as much money as you guys just did, here's a card. Come back, you can make two hundred and fifty G's tax free." There's nothing right pure about fighting a war that way. No. I mean, if you're going to fight a war, you got to pay the price. You got if you fight it, you got to be. Hey, I am going to fight a war, and it's dangerous, and we might get killed. And- the friendly fire, not as much as Vietnam, I think, for the same re- reasons as you mentioned. When it did happen, it was largely in urban combat settings because we did a lot of urban door-to-door, house-to-house type stuff. There was a lot of killing of innocent civilians where we were, and that's because it was the Wild West. In western Iraq and Al-Ambar province during the insurgency, we had no, I not, much like yourself, I never once saw a war correspondent, not one time. Nor did I see many uh, higher-ups, and our lieutenant they went were out. They controlled in your time, too. I mean, they, 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 they didn't have any of this. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, we also did not patrol regularly with our lieutenant. Our platoon sergeant was the guy in charge. That was it. So those parts are very similar. The lies also drove me nuts. Fuck, Oliver, the second time that we were there, I'm in the chow hall. We took over a train station that was like our major operating base, and then we'd set up retransmission sites and fobs outside of the train station. One chow hall in the train station with one TV. I'm eating chow, and Donald Rumsfeld's on the TV saying, there are no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I left the fucking chow hall, ran to our sea huts, and scream to everybody. I'm like, do you see what he's on fucking TV telling us that the reason we're here is bullshit? And people, they just, hey, Emanuele, shut the fuck up. I mean, that's what I heard. I just, you know, guys were like, Emanuele, just shut up and do, you know, we just, who cares? And I'm sitting there going, they lied about everything. They lied about the weapons of mass destruction. They lied about the ties to Al Qaeda. And, it was as if it never happened. And while we were there, they're making the announcement. You know, hey, we do, there's no weapons here. And then two hours later, hey, guys. What year was that? I, I forgot. This was 2005. Was. So that's, he actually said that. Yeah. Yep. I, I never knew that he actually said that. Okay. Yeah. I know that uh, by that time in my movie I made, uh, the guy, the, the weapon, the guy who went over to inspect the weapons tells Bush in the White House Remember that scene yeah. at the end of W and he says, there are no weapons. It's kind of that 
blank look around the whole table. There was some truth to that scene. I mean, they were kind of stupid about it. That movie helped me get over some anger and hatred that I needed to get over. That movie, to be honest with you, Oliver, forced me to view George W. Bush as a human being. And uh, that that was something that after many, many years, I did not want to do. I know that. And a lot of people resisted that the picture was not popular. But how else can you explain this? We do it as human beings. We we fumble, we stumble, we do all the... And we're ignorant. Obviously, Cheney plays a bigger role as we saw in the background, but uh, it's the same thing going on now. I mean, Trump, you realize, cannot do anything. He would, as a businessman, he'd like to get troops out of there. He'd like to say, you know, we're finished with those wars. He'd like to, but you know he can't. I mean, in Syria, he was completely boxed in. Same thing in Iraq. And now in Afghanistan, they're going to figure out a way to stay forever. Yeah. Because we don't view it as a war. We view it really as a favorable alliance that we can use geographically because there are a lot of minerals there in Afghanistan and Iraq. That's right. I wanted to ask a little bit because... Let's talk about the book a bit more. Yeah, (laughs) that's what I wanted to get into. But what is also in the book about your military service, first of all, I have to say this, I've read a lot of books about from veterans coming home. There's never been a book that I've read that has described coming home as a combat vet, the way that you've described it, the feelings, the sense of hyper-awareness, the sense of anger and resentment, uh, the sense of, there's never, both your description of combat, your description overseas, and also your writing coming home is some of the best, if not the best writing I've ever read from a veteran. Thank you. That's, that's just me being straight up. And, um, I wanted you to touch on this a little bit more before we get into the book, and that is that whole dynamic of learning within the Marine Corps. You know, we were with guys from the South. We were with guys, the way that you described the sort of social interactions within the Marine Corps or within the Army, they didn't change that much by the time we got there. There were still the heads, which I was part of the heads. There were still the juicers who were a lot like a lot of Southern guys, you know. So we had barracks. There would be one room. You'd have Cody Gersh and – uh Jeffrey Hames listening to Johnny Cash. The next room, you'd have Melvin Fields and Jacques Glasper from the south side of Chicago and Baltimore listening to Tupac. And then in the next room, you'd have our crew listening to like the Grateful Dead and smoking weed in the in the bathroom. And that was like, wow, that was how it was. I really true. That's unbelievable. I haven't heard that before. No one ever talks about that. Like, how many, How was the drug scene over there? What was it for? We I mean, what, the second time around, you could do it. The whole time you were in, you could do anything you wanted because when they started drug testing people, they saw the percentage of people who popped and they said, we can't kick out. We actually had a battalion formation where our battalion commander told us if we threw out everybody who popped on the last piss test, we'd have half of a battalion right now. So they just said, fuck it and didn't bother with it for four years. Really? Really? During our second deployment, Oliver, we... we didn't bring anything over the first time, though people would work with Iraqi police trying to get hashish. The second time around, we brought cocaine and weed there, but we, we used it mostly when we were back on the train station, and it ran out within two months because everybody thought we were going to have enough for eight months, and it was gone within two months. Um, you couldn't bring anything back, though, so guys tried to bring explosives back. Guys tried to bring all <laughs> kinds of crazy shit back, and they would sure. pop, you know, they would search your shit at customs like you were any other person, and they, you know, guys got in trouble. But yeah. I love it. 
There was a lot yeah, of drugs they, after uh, the, the officers were saying at the battalion, they would, anybody who popped, what do you mean by pop? That, like, that, if you pop positive, we would say you popped. Like if you, oh, if you tested positive for a piss test, it'd be like, Oh, Oliver popped on the last piss test, you know? I see. Jesus. And, and then they, they started shredding the documents. Yeah. The pe- our people at HQ, they just started shredding the, the drug test documents. And the, uh, so therefore the Pentagon knew about it and, and, and covertly. No, not the Pentagon. They stopped it at the company level. Yeah. At the battalion level, they just said, this isn't going any further. So all the H H, you know, all the H and S departments started shredding all the, the drug test documents. What about grass? Was there grass there? Everywhere. Yeah. We smoked a lot. Did it come from Iraq? We brought it. Oh, we brought it in our packs. So we now it came from Los Angeles, California, actually. <laughs> actually, it came from East Los Angeles from our friend Arturo Gomez, who used to take us to the hood to go grab it. <laughs> well, we in Vietnam, you know, they had grew strong shit. So it was not an issue of bringing it over. They were selling it to us. So they'd be everywhere. Sometimes the mama sons were outrageous. They'd be on the front. We'd be out in the bush and they'd come to the perimeter. <laughs> what? They, they, they were, they were, they needed money. I don't know. They walked yeah, up yeah. on the perimeter in the daytime, I think. And there were guys that make transactions in the fucking perimeter. Wow. Holy it was pretty shit. wild. I mean, I can't say it was always like that, but, and we did smoke in base camp, not on the, not in the field as I remember, but still it was pretty wild. And I think there was sex on the perimeter too. None of that. That's the only thing that we saw, at least in my experience, we didn't see one Iraqi woman that we could interact with. Not one. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. They keep them sacred, I guess. They're, well, there was a lot of jerking off in porter pots is what that looked like. <laughs> so, that was about right. the only fucking thing. <laughs> was about it for eight months. Because we didn't yeah, have R&R. They would, they, they would not do that. You're saying the women would not jerk you off. No, no, no. I'm saying there was no women to interact with. So guys just ended up, you know, fucking jerking off day and night. That was all yeah. guys did. And your PX system there, just tell me, what was that like? Was it as corrupt as Vietnam was? The PX system? Okay, so during the second, first deployment, there were no PXs. Second deployment on that train station, they built a $17 million chow hall and PX system that had everything from crab cakes to soft serve ice cream to flat screen TVs with Fox News on them 24-7 with Philip, get this, Oliver, you don't think there's p- people in Iraq that needed to work? They brought in fucking Filipino contract workers to work the fucking chow halls in Iraq while you got millions of people displaced from their homes and looking for a place to fucking work. So that'll give you an idea of how just insane it was. By the And then, give you, I'll, I'll wrap this part up, Oliver. Then in 2014, when ISIS takes over that, what do you think one of the first bases was that ISIS took back over? It was the train. It was our train station in Western Iraq in Al Qaim. All those yeah. years, all those people killed, all the bullshit, and no less than six years later, the fucking Iraqis are controlling the train station again. I think the uh, PX racket, and yet I think by the time when Iraq started, uh, I don't think the PX racket run uh, by the. You see, in Vietnam, they, after the war, there was a huge scandal. The first sergeant of the army, of the whole army, based in Washington, D.C., was busted. You can check it out in the historical facts. And he ran a ring of sergeants, master sergeants. And they made a fortune in fortune, selling PX items on the black market. 
obviously in Vietnam, the Vietnamese are very sharp. You know, they're not stupid people. They just, they must have made a bundle because that, they would resell it. And all kinds of deals were being done. And they'd resell it sometimes, I guess, to the enemy or to the NBA or the uh, Viet Cong who would sometimes have our weapons, our weapons. And But uh, the uh, obviously they didn't like all our food, but <laughs> no, no. But uh, there was, it was most electronics, I think, and very good electronics were being shipped over and, and resold all the time. It was a big market in stereos and all that stuff, you know, that right. people resell. And cars, we even had cars there. Uh, I, we couldn't get to the PX hardly at all, but boy, we heard about it. For us, it was equipment. Uh, the last thing I'll say on this is that it was equipment, guys that were in supply. We're, we're taking flak jackets and all the extra military equipment and selling it back home. And the other thing that was happening, well, and as you know, Oliver, this is big time nowadays because in the last 20 years, you got all these Americans buying machine guns, flak jackets, all this other shit. So it's sold. So and they resell it to the home market. That's yeah, they're selling it back to Americans. And That's then nice. the, other, the other thing I was going to mention in terms of people making money, um, you know, you had a lot of people there who were on contract civilians to do all kinds of stuff. I mean, a load of laundry in Iraq was costing a hundred dollars for every load of laundry to do. So, I mean, this was like a hotel, right? Yeah. No, I mean, it, it is disgusting. disgusting. It is. In my day, at least we had, we, 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 we did the, we did the uh, kitchen duty. I mean, KP duty. Uh, although actually you know, I, when I think about it, there was Vietnamese coming in more and more and they were leaking information to the enemy you know, where to blow up, our, where our ammo dump was, what the coordinates were and all that shit. Our ammo dump did get blown up. It was some night. I'll never forget that. That's a big explosion. Oh, ammo I bet. Dump. I bet. Well, how about we do this? Oh, I, you, I mean, you know, the ultimate fucking joke of all time. I mean, you have to know the story about Kuchi, which was the base camp of the 25th Infantry. I was up in Daoqiang, but base camp was the big one, was in Kuchi, right outside Viet, Saigon. You know what they found after the war? No. After the war, no <laughs> tunnel system beneath the camp oh, that ran all the way into the jungle uh, on the hobo woods and the north and the Iron Triangle. The, the system had been built over 30, 40 years against the French. Right, enormous. It was they could pop up in the middle of the camp anytime they wanted and uh, walk around and if they had the right fake uniform and do anything they wanted. It was that. It was so. They used it not to, they didn't want to blow it. So they used it very circumspectly. There's stories about it. It's called the Tunnels of Cuchin. Uh, it was written about, but it's, you realize the whole time <laughs> underneath one of our major base camps, they had another base camp as big as, they had hospitals down there. They had all kinds of shit. And they knew they were safer there underneath us than they'd be in some place that could be blown up by a B-52. One of the fundamental differences to me between Vietnam and Iraq is that the Vietnamese resistance was unified, whereas in Iraq, in our area of operations, we had at least 16 to 17 different groups operating, some of them Shia, some of them Sunni, uh, some outside fighters, some bandits, uh, some police officers. I mean, there were, you know, there was no unified resistance. Right. That makes sense. And it's one of the reasons why you could find significant portions of Iraqis that wanted us there, not so much to your point. Uh, that they were making money, but a lot of the Sunnis were worried. Now that the Shia were in power, 
there were massacres taking place. Shia police officers started killing a lot of Sunni civilians. I mean, this went on and on. So then the Sunnis who are in this position look to the American forces and they say, well, now you guys are the only ones protecting us. What a minute. What's that? Everywhere we go, we make things worse. Isn't that true? Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, I, I, I do want to switch gears because there's so much more in your book. Yeah, go ahead. I, I've listened to a ton of, I've listened to almost every interview I could find that you've done with the book. I read the book at least a few times. And what I'm going to try and do is touch on some things that maybe you didn't touch on in previous interviews. So I don't have you here just repeating yourself. So I don't, if you want to, we could go through some of your early life. I think you've done that in a lot of previous interviews, you know, talking about your, whatever you, you know, whatever is of interest to your audience. I don't know. I'm particularly interested in, in, one of the themes that seems to keep coming up throughout your book is that it's like a lot of great things happening at the same time that there's a bunch of challenges happening. Um, and at each of those moments, you make decisions, you know, whether to stay, to go. Um, and this is something that dates way back. I mean, so as a kid, uh, you know, you go off to boarding school, you're at boarding school, your parents get divorced, um, you know, you end up after that, going to Yale, uh, you get to Yale, realize you're burnt out. You're like, man, I've had enough of this shit. You know, this whole American life, striving, cars, money, trying to make it, the whole thing. And you see a bulletin, you see on the bulletin board that there's an opportunity to go teach English in Vietnam. And so you drop out, you go teach English for a little while, travel around Laos and Cambodia and Thailand by yourself after you resign uh, teaching for a little while, and then you end up joining the Merchant Marines. So you have this like total adventure before you join. Well, just to continue with that, you end up in the United States after the Merchant Marines. And this is where you end up discovering writing. You go down to Mexico, spend time in a hotel, sort of hold yourself up. You start writing for the first time in a real way where it just starts pouring out of you. This is a child's night's dream. You take this, bring it back to New York, uh, you try and you shop it around, try and find a way to get it published. It doesn't get published. Your heart's broken at that point. And this is when you decide to join Vietnam or join the military and go to Vietnam, sent to Vietnam on September 16th uh, on your birthday, which was also 15, 15. September 15. You lost that day. I'm sorry. And um, which, by the way, September 16th was the day that I joined. That's the day I found myself on the Yellow Footprints in uh, boot camp in San Diego was September 16th, uh, 2002. So that's it. Um, after this, though, because we talked about the military, you come home from the military and you end up going to a place that a lot of us spend time in. At least I know Sergio and I did, and that's Baja, Mexico. <laughs> um, and you take a bunch of drugs down there. You're wild. You're back from the military, back from war. And you, you get popped at the border for smuggling. This is sort of your, to me, it, it seems like this is when you become conscious of the prison system, the war on drugs. You're seeing black and brown people at the San Diego County jail and you're going, what the fuck is going on? And you realize that the only reason you get out is because you had a little connection, had some money, um, if you sort of want to take it from there, you know, what, where are you at, at this point, you're back from Vietnam, you go to Mexico, you get popped. You're at this point where it's like, what the fuck am I going to do with myself? Uh, very well told. Uh, I was Tijuana by the way, not Baja. Oh, we spent in Tijuana and Rosarito, but I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. 
that's not that is mainland Mexico. Uh, yeah. Well, I am where I said I am. I to be. I was. I'm faithful to where I felt at the time. I try not to get ahead of myself. And if I do get ahead of myself and look at it in retrospect, I make it really clear that this is retrospect. So it becomes a subjective experience. I'm lost and and lost and I'm alienated. I'm numb. I don't know where the fuck I am. I just go back to New York. And as I said, those first six to eight months might have were pretty rough for me because I didn't know what to do. But you know what I ended up doing was uh, renting a cheap apartment down down in the on the east uh, lower east side and uh, and writing writing with this, that spare time that you have because I wanted to. Uh, in other words. This is years after the, I, this is like a repeat performance because I go to Mexico the first time right. and I, right. I, I come back with a book the second time I go and I come back busted. Uh, but I don't have a book this time because I've given up. I don't want to write a fucking novel. I hate all those phony people. I think that they're, the literary pretentiousness of it is disgusting to me. I read a lot of books, but uh, I start to write again, but I want to do a new, a new form. So I bought a, screenplay books, you know, and so I like movies, but I wasn't thinking about it until a friend, I wasn't thinking about it seriously until a friend told me that you could actually get a fucking college degree <laughs> right. by, by, by going back, uh, by studying film, which the GI Bill was available and they paid pretty well in those days. And the tuition was not ridiculous like it is now. So they, I think it covered most of my, and but that was later. I mean, the first six, seven months, eight months was pure, was madness. I mean, it was writing, just writing for writing's sake and trying to sell a couple of things, but nothing worked. And trying to, trying to go to, trying to fucking a few, fucking as many women as I could, as that I liked, going to Scientology briefly and various things. Uh, just didn't know what I was wanting to do, you know, really didn't. I guess writing was the only thing I was familiar with. You understand, I mean, I said at one point earlier that writing gave me a sense of myself, that I felt myself. I was on paper, if not in reality, I didn't know who I was in real life maybe, but on paper, that was me. And so that was the only identity I had. And the first story- I tried, too. I tried photo modeling. I, I tried that and I, uh, I may have tried some other things that I probably don't even remember, but. I had enough money at that point to, to hold out. During this time, Oliver, you were writing Break, which was based off of, well, not based off of, but the name was loosely taken from The Doors Break On Through. Um, and Jim Morrison is obviously shows up periodically throughout, not only, not only the book as a personal hero, but then, of course, you make a movie about The Doors. And I wanted you to touch a little bit on what he means to you, and then there's a portion in that chapter and I think it's a really great couple lines that you have about the importance of the, the counterculture from the 1960s and that today people just sort of flippantly blow it off. And, and I too think that that's a really sort of distasteful way to look at that period. And it, it meant so much to so many people that I just wondered if you wanted to maybe talk a little bit about that. I think it was a very liberating time for America. It was like a revolt against this Nixon culture, the straight culture. It was total revolt and against the war and against the prison system and against the inherent racism and above all the militarism of our society. It was really, uh, Morrison and other people 
you know, the unknown soldier. He was banned. His song was banned on the radio. It was, they were always being busted. They were always being chased. They were, he was a bad boy among many others. But uh, Nixon made it political and law and order, the same thing that's going on now with Mr. Trump, you know, use it. Uh, law and order. Most people get scared by long hairs and the, the new behavior. Most people in America, I guess America is very rural and conservative. Most people live, did not live in LA or New York or, you know, bigger cities. But uh, the rock influence was big. They, it was pervasive. They went every, the culture changed. Timmy, everybody contributed. Timothy Leary. I was just relatively behind the times. I was just catching up. I did my turns with LSD. Uh, and freedom and liberation. I, but, I, you know, I didn't fit in. I was sort of an oddball because I was more like Travis Bickle than I was like <laughs> hippie, you know? Uh, uh, so, yeah, it's just, I was tripping alone. I, I remember one trip, I took a New York subway at night, which is crazy, take a, taking a trip on a subway. Fucking nuts, man. It just very grim. I, I, I was willing to face grimness. I wasn't... I was I was tough. I was I'd been toughened and coarsened by the war. So uh, I also wrote another screenplay right after that about my mother, Dreams of Dominique, based on the Fellini movie. I just love to I'd love to go back and see who I really was. But anyway, I ended up in film school, and I ended up over those next few months in that first year year and a half uh, living with a woman who I married, uh, Najwa from the UN and she was the most civilizing influence for me. She really brought me back in a sense of, to an, a place in society where I felt like I could belong again. Although ultimately I was not happy with it. And I gave up the marriage after six, seven years. And as I said, in 1974-5, I moved out. But that, those were key years. And during that period, I went to film school and I met a lot of people. I started to broaden my broadened my my social life uh very important for me of course there were fights with my father uh, you know because he'd been pro-war although he changed before he died uh and i gave him some lsd as, as I, <laughs> I really wanted to change his mind it wasn't because i was fooling around i wanted to right. get to his fucking head <laughs> right i was very much ahead i smoked a lot of dope no coke nothing like that i just didn't know about that uh I, that was a bit it, you know, and there was, no, I, I didn't touch heroin. I didn't touch heroin. There was people in Vietnam who did very few, as far as I know, that was still 68. The thing really changed in 69 on because that you have to realize that Johnson's announcement that he wasn't going to run for election as dishonest as he was, was, was an admission that he was, we were not going to win this. War. And that's when the thing in Vietnam really got worse. I was there during a period of that, and it, it became worse and worse with more mutinies. And people didn't want to die. They didn't want to risk their lives on stupid missions or stupid ambushes. And there was resistance. And I think everyone felt it up and down the line. And the black-white thing got worse. Yeah. Black-white got worse. Well, you have the assassination same year. I mean, you've got MLK, you've got... You know, Robert F. Kennedy, just on and on, you have a series. Then the riots in 60, you know. The, the King killing really pissed off a lot of people over there because there was, a, in the infantry anyway, it was most of, it seemed like 20, at least 20% were black. Right. And uh, there were some black dudes over there who just wouldn't even talk to me. And I was 
a friendly white guy, but yeah, uh, it was really there was a lot of hostility. One of, uh, one yeah. of the uh, one of the concepts. In other words, your 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 question is everything was potentially up for grabs. There yeah. was the beauty of it, and the uh, Abby Hoffman, of course, who I used in Born on the Fourth of July, was my kind of. He was so outrageous to me. I was straighter than that. I could. I I love Morrison, but to me, Abby was like even crazier than Morrison. <laughs> and when I finally got to work with him and I read more about him, I really admire him now for what he he stood for because he was tough. I mean, he really put up with a lot of shit, and his life was ruined to a large degree by Nixon, as was it was ruined to a large degree, not completely, because he came back. But, and also Timothy Leary's life was haunted by his drug busts and all that, but he too came back and I got to know him pretty well later in life. That's really cool. I actually, his books were some of the first books I started reading um, when I was in the Marine Corps taking uh, mushrooms a lot. So as I was eating a lot of mushrooms, I started reading. How could you, how could you report for duty on mushrooms? My God, you'd be laughing in the sergeant's face. Yeah, no. So, so I wasn't, this was after hours and it was definitely not when I was on duty. <laughs> Still a trip like that. It takes 24 hours or whatever, 16 Oh hours. yeah. There were times when we showed up, Sergio's laughing because there were times we showed up to formation where people were laughing and at parade rest. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine that. Uh, I, I had a few Article 15s. I don't know if they still have that. Oh, yeah. Got one yeah. myself. <laughs> they were always busting me for, I had a bad attitude, you know, in terms of, I was, I like the black guys for that because they always thought the man with the man was, was suspect. And I think I picked up on that, but through osmosis, not because I went in like that, it's just osmosis, uh, just a resistance. And I liked them for that because they thought they saw through the bull. I don't ever remember any black dude being gung ho. I just, yeah, there was a few, maybe. there was a few sergeants, but they were not really, they weren't as never as fucked up as some of the white sergeants who I had like Barnes. Yep. Remember Barnes? Yep. Same. Here. Wasn't, that's his fake name, but, uh, and Sergeant Elias, who was cool. I mean, there was some really, I, it's, it's funny that you described the same heads and uh, juicers, man. I thought that would that was funny because it was so noticeable, the the country music. But it wasn't. I like Johnny Cash. It was more like uh, I do too. It's like Merle Haggard, Oki from Skokie, and all that shit. Yeah, yeah. I I uh, wanted to mention Oliver. One of the things to to go back to the timeline a little bit, not just that '60s counterculture, but one of the things that really interests me at this at this time. You're finishing school, you're driving taxi, you're working on Seizure, uh, your first film. This seems to be also a key moment because you meet Robert Bolt. Um, your marriage is sort of ending with, with Najwa, and this concept that you bring up, it seems to be central to keep pushing you throughout your life, and that is you mentioned being too comfortable. You mentioned this moment where you're kind of looking around, and I've had that thought. I've never been married, I don't have kids, and I feel very restless and not sure where the hell I'm going to end up at any moment and still wanting to take a lot of adventures. And, I, and I've had those moments, too, where you sit back and you go, I got the nice girlfriend. She got the dog. She got the cat. We're in the house. It's a nice Saturday. We're watching movies. And after a few months of that or a few years, you go, fuck, is this it? You're like, is this really it? I mean, does it all stop here? I mean, I, that's the sense. I don't know. I don't want to misdescribe the way that you 
were feeling this at the time or the way you look back on it, but it, this sense of being comfortable and wanting to push yourself to test your limits, to keep chasing that dream. I think this is so key because so many of us, I think, get comfortable and we just kind of say, Hey, this is as good as it gets. Right. You kind of look around and that's what happens. That's what happens to most people. The majority, uh, I can honestly say that I had an urge in myself to be creative. It was just in my blood. It was coming from that child's night dream period. Perhaps that was a total devotion. I trashed my fucking college education for that book. You realize I, uh, I, I left twice and went to a, a war. I mean, I could have been killed, I guess. I, I, I accepted that. But you understand that I was devoted to this muse, call it a muse, that this idea that this is what I can do. So it got diverted over there, yeah, in Vietnam, because there was no ability to, to write. There was no, no, everything got wet. There was no paper. I ended up taking photographs, which became the basis of another way of looking at life, right? A lot of photographing. So merging the, the word with the, with, with the visual that, because I was 360 in the jungle, you have, to, you have to pay attention. You don't walk around with cerebral thinking about fucking anything else, but pay attention, right? That's what you gotta do. The hard part is paying attention over 24 hours, which means le less sleep and all that shit. You know, you, be, you become attuned like a fine jungle creature. And I was there, man. I was on the edge of my consciousness. And I think that is very crucial to filmmaking because it puts you in a state of mind that's so concentrated. And I think uh, by bringing the word to that on top of it was beautiful. That was the, that was the fun of the, that was growing. The idea was growing in me that there was a, a way to do, to find meaning in this life by merging word and picture, eyeball and brain or whatever you want to call it, ears and brain and eyes. All the senses were awake over there. All the senses were awake, pursued that. And by, in that regard, I just want to say really quickly that going to those classes outside film school, one, the one with Timothy Leary, the other Timothy Leahy, Leahy uh, Greek drama, crucial, because he taught me and woke me up. Uh, he was an eccentric teacher. He said, you know, behind, look at life, behind the ordinary the, lies the mythic. And when I understood the concept of that consciousness of odyssey uh, and sleep, lethe, I understood the concept of that in my own way. I, I look back at the Vietnam experience and those soldiers that I knew who seemed ordinary, but they weren't ordinary. They were, this Sergeant back Barnes was a completely devoted, and he was a weird man, but he was admirable in so many ways. And uh, Elias was also, and, you know, they were in different platoons. And, but the idea, you see, that becomes the, you, then you begin chasing an idea like to merge and to, to dramatize it. Another thing that happens is that Robert Bolt in 1975, four or five, late four, uh, is comes into my life on the on a script a, a treatment I written called the cover up about Patty Hearst. Bolt was a classic screenwriter in the sense of traditional. He put it all on paper. That was the way he worked, and it was a, he does amazing scripts. But film school was not about screenwriting at all. They they had contempt for it. They were saying Godard and. Uh, they, these are improvisational films and so forth. That was the mode back then. 
But thank God I went to screenwriting class because I kept it up. I kept up. So I merged two disciplines, the, the concept of improvisation and wildness and doing, being, liberating yourself through film with the more traditional screenwriting, which is for many directors drudgery. But the, I, we now know that we need screenplays. I think over time, it makes, it's like, you know, staying in the pocket when you're a quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think those are very important creative impulses that manifest in this period. So when I come to the end of the marriage, it's not like, uh, it's not like uh, comfort's deception. That's all it is. It's not like I want the comfort. I want to be creative. I, I want to break through. Like Morrison said, I want to discover new things. So am I going to settle for this? And I knew what I was, I knew that I was comfortable, but I knew I didn't love her. And I, I knew that all this facade was, was a lie too. And I could, I wouldn't survive here. I would, I could get by for the rest of my life. Absolutely. So that's sort of what I'm saying is there is a muse, a, a driving creative impulse that has to be there. You can't fake it. You cannot fake it. You have to find an intellectual idea that moves your body, your visceral side to do something. It seems like at the same time, Oliver, you have, it's 1976, you're getting divorced for the first time, but this other major moment happens. Not only do you move in with your friend above a YMCA in New York, um, back to writing and finishing Platoon, but you, and you talk about, you know, sort of reconnecting with this culture of artists, models, poets, musicians, hanging out, sex, drugs, a whole different kind of side to New York. Um, but also on a more somber note, and, and, and I mentioned this because it, I've also had a similar moment when I came home, when your grandmother dies, who you were very close to, and your description of your grandparents reminds me of my great grandparents who came here from Italy, uh, who lived through World War I. They went through life with a sort of uh, humility and grace, yet they had been through so much, uh, and they didn't complain, and they remained very loving, caring people until their end. And when your grandmother dies, you mentioned that this was like the first time that you really allowed yourself to cry. And I think it's important for us, not in this sort of bullshit way to talk about it, but I think it's really important for combat vets, for men in this culture particularly, to be able to cry. And I think there's still this sense, I mean, we talked about it earlier, so many of the gung-ho Marines that we served with ended up sticking a barrel in their mouth and blowing their fucking brains out because they kept that I'm a fucking tough guy bullshit until the day they couldn't take it anymore. And it seems like throughout the book, this was one of those key moments where you were able to just let out a lot of shit about life, about how you were feeling about yourself, the war, all kinds of shit put, you know, comes pouring out in those two pages that you reflect on your grandmother's death. Uh, 1976 is a turning point in so many ways because I'm 30 years old. The country is a 200th anniversary. And I'm, I'm not, I haven't arrived to where I want to be. I'm not successful. I'm living, I'm, I'm broke and I'm divorced or about to divorce. Nothing has gone right. I've written eight, nine scripts, five treatments, tried a lot of things. So uh, I think when my grandmother died, it's more, it's gradual, but the realization sets in that there is a finite limit to all of us and that I have a certain amount of time to go. I'm 30 years old and what have I done? And 
okay, I'm halfway through or whatever they want to call it, but uh, I got to get moving and I got to be more serious, more serious, rededicate myself to this craft, which I think I can do, but I'm not sure. I think I can do it. Yet that is the year I write Platoon. That is a very important milestone for me because it was the first time I was able to write cohesively about reality, about a realist, relatively realistic situation because it's not all realistic, it's mythic too, but it was a cogent use of my experience in uh, three different combat platoons uh, in Vietnam. So I merged the soldiers into one unit. And I realized as I was writing it that the big, but we never really fought them. We lost men they, and we, we had some battles, but what was going on was really inside us. It was this fucking unit, the army with all this madness of people coming with different lifestyles and, and, uh, the tension was within, it was within America. The tension was not between America and Vietnam. The tension was between America and America. And this extended to the home front too. It was not the war front only. And I realized this growingly, not immediately, but it grew on me. So that that's why the platoon is a civil war movie, really. It's about red versus blue. It's about a sergeant who basically is brought up on war crime charges for killing by another sergeant and his career is going to be ruined. So he strikes back and he uses the cover of war, friendly fire to off the sergeant that he's facing uh, this, his, his downfall from. So he kills Elias. Uh, this audacious uh, third person play, uh, embodying myself just sees it or senses it's happened. He doesn't see it, he senses it. And it leads to the denouement, when the whole thing, the whole shithouse collapses and uh, he get, the boy darkens himself, but he does get his, you know, that's a big issue. He gets his revenge. He gets, he revenges Elias. It's an honor killing because he knows Elias was killed by this motherfucker. And as much as he admires Barnes and is scared of him, he's going to get him. And he's not, and it's going to be a rough, it's going to be frontier justice. So in other words, yeah, he's a murderer, but he did it because he wanted to. These are genuine feelings, yep. uh, which is to say these are pretty tough. This is very non-moral. This is not about morality. This is about the loss of morality in a war, which is typical. People come back, they're fucked up. They're coarsened by it, I feel. Uh, I don't know about you, but I definitely feel we all were darkened. Oh, absolutely. And if you spoke with my parents or loved ones, people who knew me prior to the Marine Corps, they would say it's much more significant than I probably realize it is. At the time, too. I mean, you don't realize it until later. No, no, you don't. No, one, no one's a psychologist at, the, at, his own, at his own life. It's just difficult. Come back, it takes time. It's very hard to believe again. It's like a divorce of your parents, you know, to trust, to believe. And certainly in Vietnam, they, they say, oh, Oliver Stone, why are you such a conspiracy theorist? Fuck you, you know? Why don't you guys fucking wake up and look at the facts here instead of put, pulling the, you know, the New York Times where their Warren Commission comes out. They don't even fucking read it. They announce to the world that it's, here is the answer. Like, ugh, it was a, a con job from the beginning. The whole thing is crooked. Well, the whole thing's a shithouse. It was as bad as Vietnam here. 
This blows my mind because growing up as a kid, before I became politically conscious, started reading, started to understand who you were as a director. I just remember growing up and it was like, oh, Oliver Stone, that kind of crazy lefty from Hollywood. Like this was how as a child, as like a 16 year old kid growing up in pop culture America to the year 1999, 2000, that's how I understood you. When I got home from the military and when I was in the military and started reading about your own history, I said to myself, I can't, this guy's a fucking combat vet with purple hearts and a bronze star and they talked about him like this. It hurt me on a very deep level because I was also coming home from the war, had also, you know, was speaking out about these experiences and people telling me I was lying, that I was full of shit, that I was a traitor, that I didn't love the country, all these types of things. And it just, it it really had, it blew my mind because I didn't know any of your, any of your history. And then through, through reading the book, realizing, well, first of all, I should say, thank God that Chris ends up killing uh, Barnes in the movie, because I don't think there's any other way uh, that you could have ended it. I mean, I think that, and as you talk about in the book, there was sort of a choice that you were thinking of making in that scene. And the way that you, cho- you chose to do it was about as uh, probably as good as it could be. And it it's rejected. It broke all the movie rules. It broke all the movie rules, and yeah. no one no one says that still. I mean, in the you know you read about the movie, the war movie, blah blah blah. Why don't they ever fucking tell the truth about it? Which is that it's a movie where the so called hero or anti hero kills in cold blood. They don't they don't really deal with that. It's just it's different than a war movie. You know what I'm saying? And he still comes back, and he's got a heart. He's got an understanding. I don't know what, it's just, uh, I guess with all my work, it just disappears. People don't want to deal with it sometimes. And that's okay too, because it'll be there in the future if people want to visit it. But uh, I, it's been a rough travel for me for the last, uh, the movie business has not been simple. It's been really uh, difficult and challenging. And I still never gave up making tough movies. I never gave up. And then they said, when I did World Trade Center, which I loved, and was a very tough movie to get made because it was about reality of what happened at, Bay, at Ground Zero at the, on that day, at Ground Zero. And those guys did what they did because they were there. They told me what they did, and the rescuers were there. And then they say, oh, yeah, but it doesn't have the bite that, it, that my film's a criticism in it of the whole 9-11 experience, which, uh, which I mean, not really, I don't know enough about it. I read all the shit, but I, it's not what, that's not what it's about. It's about ground zero and the men who are there. But, you know, I'm saying that you can't even make a movie like that without being judged separately. You know, Meanwhile, another guy goes out and makes an airplane movie called United whatever, 93. And he doesn't know what happened. He just fucking uh, does a fantasy, uh, which may be true or not, but I don't know. Yep. But it's not based on anything. And he's, uh, they, they approve of that. They love that. It's just weird. There's, fucking weird everything the value system of this country is fucked up well they want everything to be either good or bad black or white etc and with your characters in your movies nobody's either good or bad nothing's black or white there is no and also with with uh, the world trade center oliver what i'll say it's just like scarface go sit down with a group of firemen and watch that movie or cops and you're going to get a way different reaction than some fucking jag off in the new york times who's writing an article about some movie that he could never direct himself I mean, it drives me fucking crazy because when you describe Scarface, I think to myself, my dad growing up a hoodlum, he loved that movie. He was like, this is my guy. So was the the original Scarface. But he grew up as a hoodlum. And it's that way, natural born killers. 
any given Sunday. If you ask the people, just ordinary working class Americans, what do you think of this movie when it came out? They'll say I fucking loved it. They're like, it was awesome. I watched it 10, 20 times with my friends. That's what it is. You know, any given Sunday became very popular. You know where in Italy? Really? In Italy. Yeah, I don't know why, because they really love that movie. They don't play football, but they right. love it. I feel like Cameron Diaz's character from that movie, I feel like Ridley Scott looked at that movie and said, this is the, I need Cameron Diaz for the counselor because of the way she played in that movie. I wonder if that's true. I don't know if it is or not, but I was putting two and two together as I was rewatching a lot of your films for this interview. Her character was, they said, you know, I, there is no female executive. Fuck it. I did it because the movie business at that time had been changing and the female executives were definitely running studios and at least the creative part of the studios, not the financial, but the creative. And they were taking, and some of them were bitches and bossy and all that crap. So I just, it was just kind of my lashback at, uh, a couple of figures who I will mention in my next book. Uh, <laughs> I was hoping you were going to write a post-1986, because uh, a lot of the stuff, when I went back and, and watched a lot of these, I watched, I couldn't find Seizure, but I rewatched The Hand. I rewatched Conan. I rewatched uh, uh, Year of the Dragon. I rewatched everything up until 1986 that you had either written or directed except for Seizure and Scarface. Seizure because I couldn't find it in Scarface because I've seen it at least a hundred times. And it seems like throughout the book, as you're like talking about these different issues, they come across in the film. So in the book, say you would be talking about like yuppie culture and these yuppie women doing the fucking yoga. And then I turn on the hand and sure enough, in like one of the first scenes, the wife's on the <laughs> ground doing yoga. And I'm like, boom, I'm like, there it is. I'm like, he's getting that out through the movie, you know? And, and well, yeah, that was, a, I got it out through Michael Caine's point of view because you could see whether he was another generation than she was. It was a, a gap between the two. I mean, but, and that from which he grew his jealousy. Right. So that he does, ha he does have a motivation. And if you look at, I mean, maybe I wasn't as sophisticated as I became in terms of movie technique, but uh, constant references in, in, in surgeries and amputations and to phantom hands, yep. they, they play a huge role in, in psychological life. And it makes sense that it becomes his, it becomes his, uh, his way of striking back. Uh, it's, it's, it is, I love that last scene when he goes to, Kane is great. To me, he's convincing. So when he ends up in a fucking loony bin. Oh, that's the best looks, scene of the movie. He looks like a loony man. Oh. And, and that, and this psychiatrist is persuading him that he's, he's got to face his yeah. own deal. Right. <laughs> yeah. And can I ask you this question? It's a stupid question, and it's not as important as the rest. But were you the hobo in the hand? I was. You are the. I fit. Okay. I picked that up, and I'm like, that's that's fucking Oliver. I I just anyway. I, I know it's totally stupid, but my uh, self loathing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, your yeah, your pops telling you, hey, I hope this guy doesn't end up a bum, and then you end up trying, you know, playing the bum in the movie. <laughs> um, I wanted to you to talk about, you know. You, the movie gets rejected. I mean, Platoon gets rejected not once, but twice. The first time it gets rejected, you've talked about this in previous interviews. I don't really want to go through all of it, but I want the listeners to understand that even after you get your lucky break, you Marty Bregman reads and loves Platoon. Al Pacino and Sidney Lumet read it. They love it. This is sort of your first taste of how Hollywood functions. Platoon's making its rounds in Hollywood, but no Hollywood studio buys the film. This is sort of, you know, enter Peter Gubner and the Midnight Express, 
And I went back and watched Midnight Express, and of all the movies I watched preparing for this interview, that fucking movie is so brutally... Vi- I mean, I there's moments in that movie where I go, this is more intense than Platoon in some ways. Where I watch that movie and I go, fuck, I'm more disturbed. And I cried, to be honest, your movie, a lot of your movies make me cry. The two that made me cry this time were Salvador and Platoon, and I watched Platoon with a woman that I'm dating and she had never seen it before. And so it was emotional, I think for both of us because she was able to see it and try and understand, I think some of the things that I have experienced, but my God, when I watched midnight express again, I, I, I just, I told Sergio, I said, I don't think I could watch it again. Not that it's, I mean, it's one of the most powerful movies I think you can watch, but it is, it was so viscerally violent for me um, that I, yeah. And, in any case, I don't know if you wanted to. Well, I talk about that in the book. Remember, I say, I, you know, because I get criticized for being fascist and violent. And, and I say, this comes from who I was. Yeah. And I'm admitting to it. I'm saying, yeah, it comes from the war because I know real violence. That's what it's about. And you fault me for that. You fault me from coming back from the war with this kind of violence in me. But you have to understand that's who I was. And they couldn't understand that. They, You know, what's that fucking asshole? What's her name? Uh, Pauline Kale thinks it's a preppy, preppy bullshit, you know, <laughs> you know, I was I, at 15, I was finished with boarding at 16. I was finished with boarding school, you know, right. but she can't get out of her fucking stupidity because she sees the world in a, in her subjective way. But real violence was in all those movies. And obviously it's lessened through time, but you, you, if you go back and look closely at, at, uh, the violence becomes sublimated in World Trade Center, you see, because it's happening as a result of an accident. And so, so it's just, you can't, it's justified the excess of it, the degree of it. It's, it's gotta be that way because that's the way it was. The, the accident was, was brutal. It, it doesn't, it kills people in, in, a, in a way that is totally random, totally random. Why do those two men survive and the other one else dies? Uh, later on when I, the violence is sublimated in Snowden. I mean, it's clear the violence is being done against the American people, surveillance state. Uh, savages, make up your own decision, but that's the drug war. The drug war has raised another level of violence in American life, and it's another corrupt fucking society, as you know, with the DEA making a bundle of money. All these, all these organizations make money from from, from make money with a new racket. That's what it is. I mean, what is the Homeland Security bullshit? A new racket. That's right. Uh, That's right. Same thing as a drug enforcement agent, a new racket. The FBI, a new a racket. It's always been a racket, that one. Uh, with their CIA is a complete fucking fraud, a, a monster mafia organization that has been created in 1947. It's made so much money, we don't even know. We can't tax it, we can't stop it. It's I don't know if you, I looked at 10 minutes of Comey last night on fucking NBC or something. Oh, Jesus. I, I, I threw up. I mean, I you wanted to throw you up. You can't do it. You just, hero. No, it's too much. It's too much but, and it's dangerous. You got to laugh at this. It's, we, we have Trump derangement syndrome in this country. Uh, we do. And, and the liberal response to it by ramping up tensions with Russia is probably the most dangerous thing we could do. And we just lost one of the best intellectuals on that topic 
um, you know, Stephen Cohen. So rest in peace to Stephen because he's going to be sorely missed, especially in this period. I, I fear that. I fear that. Uh, I fear that. I fear that so much. Yeah, because it's exactly right. You can't keep insulting this country like we do, insulting it day after day like this without without consequences. 